Well, if you just remember one thing from tonight, it is this, flee from sexual immorality. Now, don't tune out, okay, after that point. There's still a bit to unpack about that, but that's the thing to remember. Flee from sexual immorality. If you've uh, lost track of where we're up to in our First Corinthians series and you're a bit surprised to hear that Bible reading read uh, tonight, you may have even caught yourself thinking, you might not want to admit this to anyone around you, but you might have caught yourself thinking, oh my, can we talk about sex at church? But as we're going to see, an unwillingness to address such matters in the context of community, in the context of Christian community, is partly what has gotten the Corinthians into so much trouble. And the presenting issue that Paul tackles here head on is that there is some guy, a member of the church in Corinth, who has moved in, and that means that he's having an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife. That's the situation. So chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, from best we can tell, the father is actually still alive. It seems to be the case from the tense in the words that are used. And Paul says that such is the depravity of this situation that it's even unacceptable to the general population in Corinth, that's what he means by pagans, those who do not yet believe, who is so well known for the promiscuity that the word to Corinthianize, the verb, meant to practice prostitution. So this is a culture in which whatever you did with your slave, that was totally up to do, whatever you did at certain dinner parties or down at the arena or the temple or the brothel, well, that was your business. That was completely up to you. But if that's not awkward enough, that some Christians seem to be outdoing their unbelieving neighbours in their sexual immorality, it is made all worse by the fact that instead of mourning what is happening, the Corinthian church are tolerating and possibly even celebrating this progressive lifestyle as some sort of badge of honour, as some sort of perverted expression of the freedom that has been afforded to them in Jesus. And Paul makes it very clear that the act of of endorsement is as serious as the sin. Often, I think we can uh, think that we live in some sort of really unique era uh, in the history of humankind, that we live in some sort of unique era of sexual promiscuity and temptation. But the, the challenge of sexual immorality is not something specific to the modern world. Guess what? The Corinthians did not have the internet but they were still plagued by the issue. Because ultimately, the problem of sexual sin is a problem of the human heart. See, whilst the presenting issue for Paul right here is this case of incest, the word that is used for sexual immorality is a much broader term. The word is porneia. It's, of course, the word from which we get pornography. The word pornography. And of course, what Paul is addressing is not just the use of porn or cheating, but it's a reference to any sexual activity, any sexual activity outside the context of marriage, premarital, extramarital, same sex, any sexual activity outside the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife. It's not about 
the sense of attraction or inclination, but the activity of pursuing and acting on it. Marriage between a husband and a wife as the context for sex is not a new idea. It's always been the classic view of Christianity, of all the major strands of Christianity, of Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox. In a uh, sermon listening to by Tim Keller, he made the point that uh, it seems like, I'm sure it probably does, irks him a little bit, that often people say, I really love Redeemer. Redeemer is a great church, but they have this really, really odd, unique view that sex is only meant for marriage between a husband and a wife. People say, it seems like a very, it's an anomaly. Everything else is fine about that church, but that's an anomaly. It's like, we're not the anomaly. You're the anomaly. It's always been the classic view of Christianity. And Christianity, the Bible upholds that view, not because God is some sort of spoil sport or views sex as bad, as something shameful to be shunned or hidden away, but quite the opposite. Because sex is so good and so special, intimate and lasting, a bit of a spoiler alert, God invented sex, he's not surprised by it, that it finds its proper and safe expression within the boundaries of the marriage covenant. And so Paul is imploring the Corinthians not to misuse their freedoms, not to mirror the culture around them, but to live in line with what God desires of them. And I think if we're honest, it's a challenge for every single person of every single age. So why should we flee from sexual immorality? That's how we're going to unpack it tonight. Why should we flee from sexual immorality? Three things. Because pride deceives us, real danger lurks, and you're designed for more. So first, pride deceives us. So chapter 5, let's continue on from verse 1. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Now, I want you to imagine something like this was happening in uh, a local church, and the scale of response was at one end dealing with it really seriously, you know, grappling with the issue, and at the other end rejoicing in it and showcasing it, even promoting it. And, you know, in the middle is the sort of the kind of response where you try to ignore it and pretend it's not, not happening. It appears that the Corinthians, they're right up this end, it appears, of rejoicing in what's happening. It's kind of mind-bending that this could actually be the case because even if the Corinthians are a misunderstanding or ignoring God's word, they would have been acutely aware of just how shameful this act, this incident that Paul's talking about was in their society. They would have actually known that the combo of incest and adultery under Roman law could have in fact resulted in the guilty being stripped of their citizenship and of their property and even banished from the city to a distant island forever. So you've got to wonder, how could they feel so convicted that this was okay? This is the way they were choosing to live distinctively. How are they willing to run the risk of all the consequences that may follow? How could they feel so self-justified in their behaviour? I think the only answer is ultimately their pride. Paul says, this is happening yet, verse 2, you are proud. Paul says, you should be confronting this. That's what he's challenging him about. But verse 6, your boasting is not good. 
Now, we already know that the Corinthians have a really serious issue with boasting, boasting in the leaders, boasting in the spiritual gifts, boasting in their knowledge. But now we see that the problem with their pride is not only expressed in a battle of the Bible studies and a confidence in knowledge over the confidence in Jesus, but a very dangerous type of theological conviction that suggested that their freedom in Christ meant that they were free to do as they please. That because they had been forgiven and they had been freed from uh, some of the Jewish laws, that must also mean a freedom for sexual immorality. That was free game. And of course, the issue is greater than just the man who's moved in with his stepmom. For it seems that the Corinthian Christians were trying to make the case that they could still go visit the brothel or they could attend what were very famous, Corinth was very famous for the dinner parties, dinner parties that sought to provide for both the physical hunger but also the sexual appetites. They thought that their freedom from sin was a freedom to sin. They thought, as Paul quotes them, he's quoting back some of their catch cries to them twice, mocking them in chapter 6, verse 12, I have the right to do anything. Paul's quoting them back to themselves. And of course, that's precisely what they did. I have the right to do anything. It's a treacherous and deceptive pattern of thinking. I have the right to do anything. But it's also an all too familiar cry. Their pride led them to think that they had the right, so they followed the desires of their heart instead of what the Lord required of them. Their pride deceived them. That's what arrogance does. It takes God out of the loop. It takes our propensity for sin, it fuels our propensity for sin, and it turns it into action, fast-tracks it. In our culture, we can so often buy into the idea that our sexuality and the expression of our sexuality is a right. When the Bible teaches us it's a gift. We can think, well, if I have this desire, then I ought to express it. I must express it. That it's part of me, of who I am, of who I'm meant to be, that I can only be my full self if I do that. But it really doesn't take too much honest reflection to acknowledge that this simply cannot be true, for it should be abundantly evident to all of us that not all of our desires are good. So how, therefore, can we possibly sift through them? What is the standard if our hearts deceive us? In recent times, there's been some very significant Christian leaders who have epically failed, tragically, abhorrently failed in the area of sexual immorality. And in the uh, wash-up of that and, and reading through some of their own comments, it has been absolutely shocking to see the way in which some of these leaders justified their behaviour. They let the desires of the heart take the lead in their lives 
instead of testing the desires of their heart against the one who gives life. But we shouldn't dare for a moment think that we are immune from such a self-delusion. In this season of, uh, if you've, in this, this season of life, you find yourself uh, wrestling with sexual sin. You might be appealing to your own rights or needs to express sexuality outside of marriage. I want to say, don't bind the deception of your heart. But test the desire of your heart with what does Paul tell us? Verse 8, sincerity and truth. Um, I don't know if that surprises you a bit. It can seem a bit strange in the face of all that, that is happening, that this race to the bottom of the, 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 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, you know, outdoing their pagan neighbours and their sexual immorality, that Paul doesn't say, you guys, what you need is holiness and purity. That's not what he says. And I think, of course, that's because holiness and purity are the fruit of sincerity and truth. When Paul says sincerity, he doesn't simply mean, well, just earnestly do the things you want to do. That's obviously not going to work out. Plenty of people do very wicked things with great conviction. But that we would sincerely live according to the truth of God's word. So when faced with a situation or a particular desire that, that you are considering pursuing, very quick one-second evaluation, would God be pleased with this? Just run that by your mind. Would God be pleased with this? If we're arrogant, we're going to bypass that and we'll only test our desire against our own sense of right. But if we're sincere, we will test our desire against God's sense of right. Our pride deceives us. Second, we must flee sexual immorality because real danger lurks. Real danger for both the community and the individual. So verse 6 of chapter 5. Uh, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Uh, yeast, of course, is the active ingredient that makes the bread rise. Now, there are so many sourdough experts since the onset of COVID, so I'm sure I don't have to tell you any of this, but whether it's yeast or it's that starter that you nurture and care for, like some sort of organic, you know, Tamagotchi that you care for in the fridge, um, you know, a little bit of the active rising agent, it affects the whole loaf. And so Paul, he's warning them by not taking action, they run the risk of this person being the red sock in the wash and leading to damaging the whole body and leading it astray. Now our culture, our culture so often says, the narrative of our culture is sex, just do as you please, just have fun, it won't hurt anyone. We, we often minimise the damage that sex and sexual immorality does. But our culture tells a lie. But Paul's challenge for the, for the community to deal with this together is also a, a real front on our hyper-individualistic culture that super resists the idea that the expression of my freedom and my rights have anything to do with anyone else. But of course they do. And what makes this worse is that Paul has warned them about this before. That's what verses 9 to 10 are all about. Did you note that? Uh, he wrote to them about this in a previous letter. 
very sadly, that previous letter is lost, which is you know, a major disappointment. They should have tracked down who lost that. But anyway, that previous letter is lost. He's warned them before. He's warned them about the danger of continuing to court friendship with these folk. When he says don't even eat with them, it's not just how we might share a meal with someone casually, but, but eating with people is welcoming them, endorsing them. It seems like they're courting these people. They, they want these people to be having an influence and a presence and a prominence in their community. That's why he says in verse 11, not associate with them, don't even eat with them. And so no less than six times, Paul says or infers that so dangerous is this immorality and so open to influence of the Corinthians who do not recognise that there is a problem, in fact the opposite, that the offender who refuses to repent, the only option is for them to be expelled. And this is a last resort for the protection of the community but also with the hope that the man will, outside of the community, that's what the phrase, uh, hand this person over to Satan for destruction means, that sounds you know, pretty, pretty full on, uh, but it means outside of the community, apart from the community of Christ, that they, that may be the context and the catalyst for that man to repent and be saved. You know, in the Old Testament, this was, this was punishable by stoning to death. In the New Testament, the expulsion with the hope that they would not hurt the community and they would repent. The Corinthians need to take some responsibility. They're really quick to, you know, judge one another's Bible studies and how much knowledge they, they have. Um, yet with their own issues, you see at the beginning of chapter 6, they're busy taking their own issues and suing one another and getting the world to judge them. But all the time they're failing to judge all the sexual immorality that's happening right in their community. They've underestimated and trivialised just how dangerous sexual immorality is. It can polarise and paralyse a church. So note what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 9 onwards. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So hear what Paul is saying. To the community, you've got to stop endorsing this. It's simply not on. And to those who deliberately sin, who have no guilt, who refuse to repent, well, they are in a very dangerous predicament. You know, every Christian is at war with sin. But it is a very different situation to make peace with sin. This does not mean that anyone who has committed such sins, that, that quite exhaustive list of sins, is unable to be saved. That's actually abundantly clear. For Paul says, he continues, verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sometimes when people have gotten entangled in sexual sin, they can often think, well, I've gone too far or I'm in too deep. They can think, oh, God can never use me. Perhaps you look back on things you've done and you have a sense of regret. But look at what Paul says to the 
church in Corinth. And that is what some of you were. That was your former self. But when you repent and trust in Jesus, you've been made new. You can go to God, confess your sin, commit to change, and wholeheartedly, totally receive the forgiveness that he offers. Look what God has made us. Washed, sanctified, justified. When we read those three words, those three elements of our new status, there's actually three buts, okay? Three buts. One before each of those words inferred in the original language. Your former self, but you are washed. You've been made totally clean through the death of the Lord Jesus, but you are sanctified. You've been set apart by God and for God, but you are justified. You have been made wholly righteous through the Lord Jesus. All that other stuff, your former self. So why would you keep messing around with sexual immorality now? With behaviour that's just not going to satisfy. With behaviour that's only going to do harm to yourself and to others. When all the time you could be embracing that we are designed for so much more. So as we, as we finish, let's really briefly look at three big ways that we're designed for more. So first, we're designed for more because our bodies matter. Some of the Corinthians mistakenly thought that there would be no physical resurrection at the return of the Lord Jesus. And so verse 13, we get a hint of that. That's what Paul's pointing to when he says that food is for, he's quoting the Corinthians, by the way, that food is for the stomach and the stomach food and God will destroy both. I think, well, this is all temporary. Because they mistakenly thought that the spiritual is superior to the physical, that's what they thought. And because they thought that, and they thought that our bodies were only temporary, then they thought, well, we can do with our bodies whatever we please. But Paul says, and he'll address this more in chapter 15, that your body matters, physical matter matters to God. For verse 14, just as by his power God raised the Lord from the dead, he will raise us also. So hear what Paul is saying. Your body's not temporary. It's valued to God. Jesus died to redeem not just the spiritual, but also the physical. So of course what you do with your body matters. Second, we've been united to Christ. Verse 15 of chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So Paul goes on in verse 16 to quote Genesis, that the two will become one flesh. And he's reminding the Corinthians that part of the very purpose of marriage is to be a, a symbol of the extraordinary union that we have with God. That's, that's part of the core purpose of marriage, that just as in the, the joining and intimacy of man and woman in marriage, two become one, that as we trust in Jesus, so too have we been united with Christ. We're in a sense married to him. In fact, it's the only marriage that's going to last forever. So when we use our body outside of the covenant of marriage carelessly, buying into a lie that sex can be casual when it's meant to be a permanent bond, we are denying the very purpose for which it was created for God, to be an illustration of Christ's commitment to his church. The imagery is 
whatever we do with our bodies, we are doing to Christ himself. Third, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, we are made for so much more. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of Holy Spirit? So not only does what we do with our own bodies matter because we await a physical new creation, because we've been united to Christ, but also because when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You'll recall, of course, that the temple was the the holiest place where God dwelled with his people. But now in God's extraordinary grace, his spirit dwells in us. Paul says, you are not your own. Therefore, don't use your body for sexual immorality, but in order to honour the Lord. Very quick self-assessment that we can do. In the face of temptation, will this honour God with my body? Therefore, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. So recognise the danger, urgently run away. Don't sort of like hang about, don't try to argue with it, don't overestimate your strength and think, oh no, I'll be fine. Flee. Uh, one of the only times that I've really had to flee was when Patrice and I were, were travelling in the south of Italy. We were in uh, Naples and, you know, if you've been to Naples, Naples is a, a fantastic place, but it can also be a bit dodgy in parts. Uh, it was New Year's Eve Eve, so the city was pretty wild and we were warned, we were staying in a really nice area, a safe area, but we were warned by the, the host of the place that we were staying that we shouldn't stray ever across one street into a different part of town. I said, whatever you do, don't cross that street, don't go into that place. And okay, um, she showed us on a map, she even actually circled the area that we shouldn't go to. But the very next day, Patrice and I were walking around, it was midday, it was a glorious uh, day, and we stumbled upon this street. We went, oh wow, here's this street that the host told us, don't cross, don't go into this place. And we thought, why don't we take a look? What's the worst that can happen? It's the middle of the day. We're seasoned travellers. Um, you can imagine how good I would be at defending anyone. We're seasoned travellers. How dangerous could it be? Well, no sooner had we crossed the road. In fact, as we were crossing the road, already noticed some dodgy things happening along the side. But no sooner had we crossed the road, we were deafened by a series of loud explosions, feeling the rush of air come past our faces, you know, pushing whatever hair I have out of the way. When I heard that, guess what? We didn't hang around. We didn't stop and ponder, hmm, maybe we should stay a little bit longer. We just got out of there. Don't see how close you can get to the flame. Don't try to manage it. Battle it, negotiate, justify, just get out of there. Don't try to push the limit. Everyone's going to have different challenges. If you know that 
watching a, a particular TV series, well, that's going to lead your heart astray. Guess what? Don't. If you're dating someone, don't go away together alone. If the internet is a major challenge for you, a challenge for you, set up some accountability with a friend. This isn't complicated. Every single one of us is going to have different challenges. We're not to feel condemned by the temptation or attraction. It's what we do with those desires that makes the difference. I really want to say to you that if, if you are really struggling with sexual immorality, please know that you are not alone. Ask for forgiveness. Seek help from a friend. But whatever you do, don't ignore it. Let's not let our pride deceive us. For real danger lurks, and we are designed for so much more. Flee sexual immorality. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can come to you in all things in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of our bodies. We thank you, Lord, that you have designed us in a way to honour you and that you know what is best for us. Lord, we thank you so much that you have uh, given sex a context in marriage between a husband and wife. Lord, we are so sorry for the times in which our pride deceives us, for the times in which we really trivialise your will. Lord, we pray that with all kindness and gentleness that you would convict us of our sin, that you would remind us of the forgiveness that had been afforded to us in Jesus, and that you would help us to live lives that reflect the reality that we are washed, sanctified, and justified. Lord, I especially pray if anyone here tonight who really has struggled with this. Father, I just pray that they would so know your grace and your love at this time, that they would feel an openness to run to you and know that as they run to you, they confess that they so will receive forgiveness, not condemnation. We pray that in all of us, you would reveal to us in the power of your spirit any area of sexual immorality, things that we are so good at deceiving ourselves that we are totally blind to, that you would show us those things and that then you would help us to flee from them. In Jesus' name, amen.